6 o'clock straight up. Welcome. This is the Mark Riley Show on the Progressive Radio Network. My name is Mark Riley. And my special thanks to Jason Tarbenfeld for rushing back to the studio after a miscommunication that was totally, totally, totally my fault. Um, we got a lot of stuff to talk about today in the next hour or so. And uh, I want to get it all in because I think it's all very important. And, you know, I, I've always said since I started doing this program, which was actually last July, if memory serves, uh, you know, you don't have to agree with me. You don't have to think, well, that's what he says, so you got to think that way. I try and present a particular set of facts and maybe my opinion on some of those facts, but it's up to you, our listening audience, each and every one of you, to decide how you want to process the information I drop. The information, I try to uh, make it and try to maintain uh, a fact-based information when we cover these stories. We got 10 of them, and we cover them one at a time, obviously. And we have uh, uh, nine, actually eight top stories, a lead story. Uh, no offense to you, Trees, my good friend, because I spell mine differently than she spells her show. And then, of course, there's To the Ridiculous at the very end, which is just like something off the wall and, uh, quite frankly, ridiculous. Let's start with a top story that I'm sure most of you who live in the New York area uh, already know about and already probably intuited without having to have somebody release a study about it. Commutes in New York are the longest, that's right, folks, the longest among American cities. That's major American cities. Uh, maybe there's some minor American cities got longer commutes than we do. But as it turns out, we have the longest work weeks among the country's 30 biggest cities. That's according to New York City Controller Scott Stringer who released a report about this yesterday. A typical week for a full-time New York worker adds up to more than 49 hours, including an average of more than six hours of commuting time per week. Six hours of commuting time per week. Think about that, folks. Um, you know, and, and uh, as one who was very recently commuting and it was taking three hours round trip, and I'm not like way, way, way outside the metropolitan area, and I took public transportation, you can see how this affects productivity, how it affects our infrastructure, uh, how it affects virtually every aspect of our lives. Consider for a moment, folks, those of you who might be looking at pictures of Kim Kardashian in the newspaper today or some other frivolous garbage, um, you've never seen, at least as far as I know, uh, an authoritative study on how many pollutants are spewed into the atmosphere on a daily basis unnecessarily in traffic jams. And, and folks know, anybody uses any of the arteries in our city or any of the major roadways, and this is just, by the way, vehicular traffic. But if you look, you know, you've been sitting up at the Lincoln Tunnel, and the Lincoln Tunnel now is at a point where it's very, very slow coming in in the morning, and it's also very, very slow coming in at night. And think about it. you got like a 45-minute backup at the Lincoln Tunnel any time of the day, how many cars is that and how much pollution, I contend unnecessary pollution, is spewed into our atmosphere as a result of this? And that's just the Lincoln Tunnel. You can do that with any artery. You can do it with the Brooklyn Bridge, the Battery Tunnel, you name it. There are always backups. There are always delays. And this study isn't really just about delays. It's just raw commutation time. Now, another interesting aspect of Controller Stringer's study is the commuting times were longer for lower-wage workers. Longer for lower wage workers, more likely than higher wage workers, to live in parts of the city that aren't served particularly well by mass transit. For example, security guards on average spent more than eight hours a week commuting. That's an extra shift commuting. Security guards who don't make a boatload, in case you haven't noticed, they don't make a boatload of money anyway. 
eight hours a week. And I mean, for me, and again, I use public transportation. I use the bus and two subway lines. It was taking me at the end of my work career, three hours a day. That's twice what a security guard does. What Scott Stringer says, if New York City is going to symbolize the American dream, we cannot be a nightmare when it comes to long work hours and commuting. Our residents deserve better. Now, by comparison, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the average work week was 44 and a half hours. Commuting time made up just under three and a half hours of that. Ours is 49 hours, and that includes six hours of commuting time. Now, we can't really, I don't think, compare ourselves to Milwaukee. But understand, other cities don't have these kinds of extraordinary commuting time. What that means is that today's politicians, and I fault them for this because I think that politicians in previous years may have done a better job at this. But politicians today have to have a long-range vision for how this city will improve in the future. And one way, if you want to use metrics, is to improve the work week and commutation time. If it's at 49 hours and six hours of commuting time, who says it can't be 43 hours and two hours of commuting time? But see, what that means is status quo solutions, reforms, won't get it. Now, I happen to agree with the uh, congestion pricing. They're not calling it congestion pricing this time because the last time they did, It got shot down on the local level and in the state legislature where it has to pass. But you've got a few brave souls who are standing up for a congestion pricing plan, which will place tolls on certain arteries that don't have them now, but will also reduce tolls on highway robbery (laughs) arteries, Verrazano and some of these others. It'll reduce tolls on them. That's one small baby step, hopefully, toward getting our commutes in order. The other thing you have to have, and and it's a disgrace that we don't have because we do have the technology. It's there on certain arteries. We have to have some kind of technology that will allow the city or the state or whoever it is to collect their revenue. In other words, tolls without having toll booths. It's not impossible. The technology exists. The will to implement it does not. And therein lies the trouble. And if we don't, if we keep it up, if it's still like this years down the road, people are going to look back at today's politicians and say, what, what were they thinking? What were they thinking? Another example, I did a show last night, and I talked to a writer by the name of Jordan Fraud, who had written a piece for the Gothamist about countdown clocks in the subway. Now, I think there are like 177 stations out of the 400-some-odd we have here that now have them. But there's some technological obstacle in installing them all over. Because you need to have servers, you need this, you need that. And yet, ironically enough, the IRT subway, the oldest line in the city, has countdown clocks. The newer lines in the city, the IND, which was the latest line to have been installed, they don't have countdown clocks because their technology is so old, they can't handle it. Yet, I guess they decided to upgrade the technology on the IRT so that it works better, even though it's an older line. Go figure. Go figure. Speaking of go figure, and and this is not to trivialize the story we're about to talk about next, um, an Air Force veteran from New Jersey who had been recently fired from his job as an airplane mechanic 
now faces charges of trying to support the Islamic State by seeking to join the group. His name is Tyrod Nathan Webster Pugh. He's a 47-year-old American citizen, tried to travel into Syria back in January after he got fired from his job in the Middle East. When he tried to go from Egypt to Turkey to Syria, Turkish authorities sent him back to Egypt. The Egyptians sent him back here. He's an American citizen. The complaint and indictment were unsealed yesterday in Brooklyn. He's one of a number of Americans, and I find this a a strange and troubling trend. A number of Americans have been charged lately with supporting Islamic State. Earlier this month, three Brooklyn men were charged with supporting the organization. One of those was arrested as he boarded a plane to Turkey. He also planned to go to Syria. What is it about Islamic State that seems to be so attractive? There's a small number of people now. Don't get me wrong. It's not like they're taking plane loads over there. But what is it that makes it so inviting for people? And what do you think ought to happen to people who get charged and and go to trial and get convicted of the charges against them? How much time do you think they ought to do? Now, we don't have our ordinary phone system in place. We hope to have that shortly. However, you can text me at 917-830-3023. 917-830-3023. When you text me, I can put it up on my email, and I'll read your text on the air. What do you think ought to happen to Tyrod Nathan Webster Pugh and others? who stand charged with aiding Islamic State. Now, apparently, Mr. Pugh was in the Air Force for four years, from 86 until 90. He installed and maintained airplanes, engines, and navigation and weapons system. He converted to Islam in 1998. Now, he would be a great recruit for Islamic State because he knows all about planes how to set them up, how to do maintain engines, how to mess up engines. He had been working for American Airlines. And in 2001, the FBI received a tip from one of his co-workers saying he was expressing sympathy with Osama bin Laden and anger at the U.S. And apparently somebody else who knew him said he wanted to fight jihad in Chechnya. Now, I don't know what kind of red flag is supposed to happen when law enforcement sees this kind of thing. But apparently, he really pursued this in earnest. And by the way, he continued to work on airplanes as an army contractor in Iraq. But as it turns out, he went from Egypt to Istanbul planning to enter Syria. And when they questioned him, he said he was on vacation and an Army Special Forces pilot. And he said, he told authorities in Egypt that the U.S. doesn't like black Muslims. How ironic is that? Now his wife, his wife, I guess, told authorities that he wanted to go to Palestine and join jihad. He said, quote, there is only two possible outcomes for me, victory or martyr. Why do people, you know, I mean, look, I I respect people's religions, okay? I have a deep and abiding respect. I don't want to disrespect anybody's religions or religious customs or whatever. But why would someone want to do this? Why would someone want to hook up with Islamic State? Somebody from the, from the United States. You know, you can like make it very, very simple and just, you know, like, if you want to go over there and live, go over there and live. Nobody's, you know, nobody in America is stopping you. But you don't have to start talking about jihad. You don't have to talk about, you know, 
trying to destroy the United States. What, what sense does that make? It makes no sense in the world to me. But he's now, and by the way, he's from Neptune, New Jersey. He's not that far outside the area. So he was, uh, at this point, I guess, locked up. Now, here's a consumerist story for those of you. We're going to get to another story, but I want to get this one out as soon as, as early as humanly possible. <clears throat> Some of you, I'm sure, have decided to forego ordinary sugar-laden or high-fructose corn syrup-laden sodas in favor of the diet variety because we have been sold in America on the notion that diet sodas, which have very few, if any, calories and no carbs, which is good for me as a diabetic, that they're supposed to be better than ordinary sodas. Now, I uh, don't get me wrong. I don't drink a lot of soda anymore. I used to. You know, when I got thirsty, first thing I did, reach for a soda. Now, not so much. I realize I, I just put some sodas, some diet sodas in the refrigerator those bad boys have been sitting up in here for a couple of weeks. Longer than that, hadn't, hadn't had a taste of any of them. But now comes a study that says regularly drinking diet soda could impact waist size. And that study links calorie-free colas to greater abdominal obesity in adults 65 years of age and older. Now, without giving away my age, this story interests me. <laughs> Because I'm no kid anymore. All right. This was published in the Journal of American Geriatrics. It's one of the first to focus on the effect of artificial sweeteners in an aging population. That would be baby boomers party people. I know baby boomers think we're going to be forever young. Now, not so much. So, and, and, you know, I didn't get a chance to go through the study to figure out why it would affect, why diet sodas would affect the bellies of older people differently than it would of younger people, because this is about older people, all right? <coughs> the study says, and I'm quoting here, chronic diet soda consumption could increase the risk of metabolic syndrome, which is the uh, co-occurrence of risk factors that contribute to cardiovascular disease. Says the uh, lead author, Sharon Fowler, from the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio, quote, the burden of metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular disease along with health care costs is greater in the ever-increasing senior population. According to the World Health Organization, 1.9 billion adults were overweight in 2014, and 600 million of them were classified as obese with a body mass index of 30 or more. That's more than double the existing cases that were counted back in 1980, 35 years ago. Now, apparently, artificial sweeteners like saccharin, uh, aspartame, and sucralose are coming under fire for studies suggesting consumption of these products have increased over the past 30 years, along with the number of obesity cases. Well, you know, that, that one may not have anything to do with the other, unless they can, you know, put some meat on the bones in terms of that. But they uh, worked with individuals of Mexican-American and European-American descent, age 65 or older, and they tracked diet, cola, diet soda in, uh, intake, I don't want to say just cola, and measured waist circumference, height, and weight. And apparently, uh, diet soda drinkers didn't do well. I mean, like regular diet soda drink. Uh, and what they seem to be saying is not the most, uh, uh, well, put it this way, not the smartest thing for people to be doing. If you're in that age bracket and if you're a little bit uh, on the heavy side, maybe diet soda is not for you. Which means, essentially, people 65 or older, uh, over uh, probably only have water <laughs> as a solution. Um, diet juices, in my experience, taste awful. I don't know what they put in them, what kind of sweeteners they put in them, but they, by and large, taste awful. Now, you can get reduced sugar juices. I, I mean, I tend to like juices. I've liked juices since I was young. 
Um, but, you know, they, they do have some sugar in them. Water, on the other hand, has none of the above. And I don't know whether they've studied yet whether if you drink a whole bunch of water, your waistline expands also. I don't know. But uh, just a word to the wise, I suppose, is sufficient. Um, Starbucks is trying a race together campaign. Uh, it's a, a, an attempt to turn the coffee corporation story, stores into impromptu forums for racial dialogue. Uh, maybe they're overreaching a little bit. And, and by the way, I don't drink Starbucks coffee. I, I just don't. I have my own home brew that I get. I get the beans from, from a really good place in Brooklyn. And uh, I grind them here and make the coffee here. I make me one strong cup of coffee in the morning. I'm good. No worries. But apparently, uh, Starbucks, uh, his, the CEO of the company announced this initiative asking the company's baristas. I always hated that. Look, they work behind the counter at a Starbucks. You ain't got to call them baristas. Anyway, to write Race Together on Coffee Cups as an invitation to talk about race with customers. Apparently, the customers aren't down. They, they just, like, were all over this like a cheap suit, which maybe shouldn't surprise anybody because when it comes to talking about race in this country, Americans, it, it is truly the third rail, not just of American politics, but of American discourse in general. People don't want to talk about race. You know, you talk about the race for the cure, but you can't talk about the about race. They suggested, some people suggested through social media, where else, uh, that they could call uh, call stuff Malcolm Espresso. Some of my best friends are black coffee. Buy any beans necessary. The white chocolate mocha's burden, and I have a cream. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's a well-intentioned effort on the part of Starbucks. Uh, not so great on the execution part. Awkward on the execution part. But it really is another example of people being scared to death, even in an innocuous situation like getting coffee in the morning at Starbucks. They're scared. People are scared. And they'd rather make up snarky, either hashtags or whatever. And now apparently the backlash got so bad that the uh, vice president for global communications temporarily deleted his Twitter account. Wow, they got vice presidents for global communication. Okay, I guess they do. I guess they need that sort of thing. Uh, the corporate account said it's worth a little discomfort. Well, it is, but not for most people. It might be worth it for Starbucks, but it's not worth it for most people to talk about race. It really isn't. Especially in the morning. You know, people are grumpy in the morning. They're trying to get to the office. They ain't worried about race, I guess. Now, speaking of worried about race, and, and this is a story that I find absolutely amazing. It was in the Daily News, and it was trumpeted as an exclusive. Exclusive. Michelle Obama's mother was worried about her daughter marrying a biracial man. Apparently, Michelle Obama's mother... Marion Robinson, had misgivings about her child marrying a young black man named Barack Obama because he was biracial. And by the way, all she did was confess to being, quote, a little bit, unquote, wary about her future son-in-law being the product of a white mom and a black dad. According to Robinson, could have been worse. That didn't concern me as much as had he been completely white. <laughs> now, see, uh, they say, they, she said this in an interview, and nobody noticed it, right? That would be because she was goofing. God, you know, there are some folks that absolutely don't have a single clue about black folks' sense of humor. She was goofing when she said that. And here's the thing I find amazing about this. All right. Here's they they dig this stuff up. Marion Robinson afraid when her daughter was or worried or wary of her daughter 
marrying a biracial guy. She ain't worried about her daughter being first lady of the United States. That she's not worried of. So apparently she overcame, in the words of Martin Luther King, her difficulty with the biracial thing. But understand that, again, when you put your foot on the third rail of American discourse, that being race, that happens all the time. It happens all the time. It happens among black folks. And by the way, among black folks that are not biracial. Say, well, you know, you're going to marry that light-skinned girl or you're going to marry that dark-skinned guy. It goes on all the time. And, of course, nobody, nobody wants to talk about how a white mother would feel if her daughter was going to marry a black guy. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. No, it's more interesting, I guess, to talk about Michelle Obama's mom and make it news that she was a little bit wary. Oh, God. Uh, And by the way, it turns out, to to show you how you make a story a non-story within the body of a story, uh, because this guy wrote a biography called uh, Michelle Obama, A Life. Uh, The guy who wrote it, who uh, worked at the Washington Post, now teaches at Northwestern University, Marion, no pushover, was favorably impressed with Barack. So, talk about a tempest in a teapot. A tempest in a teapot. Ladies and gentlemen, it's 27 minutes past the hour of 6 o'clock. This is the Mark Riley Show. I am he. You are listening to the Progressive Radio Network. An institution, by the way, well worth supporting. Go to prn.fm to find out some more information about that. You can text me at 917-830. 3023-917-830-3023. And if I get to, I'll get it in my personal email and I will respond to you if you text me at that number. Um, I'd be particularly interested to, to see what you think ought to be done with this Air Force jihadi guy. What do you, um, now, don't anybody text and say, well, execute. You can't execute. You can't. He hasn't done anything overtly violent. What he did do, however, was act like he wanted to be down with Islamic State. Uh, I don't, well, put it this way. I can't, in my old age, figure out why anybody would want to do that. I'm sure people have their reasons. He's not the first American that they've caught in this. And by the way, uh, you know, quote, Western European, the civilized world. You got people all over who, for whatever reasons, want to do this, want to be part of what I consider to be a barbaric organization. But to each their own. Now on to our lead story, because almost 6.30. Time is flying. So House Republicans have come up with their budget. Now, I know, and I've said this many, many times over the years, For most Americans, talking about budgets makes their head hurt. All they want to know is when it's passed. And hopefully the government won't shut down because whatever government checks they may get would stop. So that's their concern. And I understand that concern. However, in this case, this is let's do another one just like the other one when it comes to the budget. This is Paul Ryan's budget, the, what is it, either the third or the fourth? Four. Oh, no. This is the fifth, as a matter of fact. What makes this different is that this is the first one since Republicans regained control of the total Congress. Um, it slashes spending by $5.5 trillion over 10 years. They don't want to call it a cut, though. They just uh, call it spending reductions. They're trying to achieve sustainability. We're not unstable, quiet as it's kept, but they want to achieve sustainability, which, of course, implies that we are not now stable. Um, 
And it's all over a 10-year period, which is wildly optimistic because there's no guarantee Republicans are going to maintain control of the Congress over the next decade. No guarantee. And, of course, when they project out like this, they're really just sort of wishing and hoping and praying that the Congress stays in Republican hands, which at the rate they're going, there's no guarantee it won't change again in 2016, which would be next year. However, let's leave that aside for a second. Um, apparently, New York Times, according to the article they wrote about this budget, they tend to think that this plan may do better than the others that they that never got enacted budgets, the Ryan budgets, because Senate Republicans will be under pressure to reach an accord. Congressman Rob Woodall of Georgia, Republican member of the Budget Committee, quote, a budget is a moral document. First of all, politicians got no business talking about morality. I am so, I don't care if you're a Democrat, Republican, Tory, or Whig, don't come to the American people with morality. All right, you just had some clown resign. Guy had his house built to look just like the one in Downton Abbey, for God's sake. Shock or whatever, I don't know. I guess maybe he was shocked. He ended up having to resign. I think he's resigning at the end of the month. Don't talk about morals. And don't talk about morals with the budget. You want to take away food stamps, which means taking food out of the mouths of kids. And you want to say the budget is a moral document? Are you drunk? It talks about where your values are. We've never had the opportunity to partner with the Senate to provide real certainty. What, really certain that you're going to privatize Medicare? And see, they've come to people with this before, all right, with this Medicare, Medicare thing. If they had their druthers, they'd get rid of Medicaid altogether because they don't like giving nothing to poor people. But let's focus on Medicare for a moment, if you would. The typical way that they come at you with Medicare say, well, we'll do a combination of things. We'll raise the minimum age for it, and we won't make any current recipients pay anything. We'll privatize it for the future. So people in their 50s would have to deal with a privatized program, but people in their 60s and 70s wouldn't. They would have it under the old. So they try to divide and conquer. But trust me, privatizing Medicare at any age is ridiculous, but it's in this budget. Transforming, they call it transforming the food stamp program. So you give it to states. So that states now have the responsibility of starving poor kids as opposed to the feds. Now, uh, Congressman Chris Van Hollen of Maryland, who's the ranking Democrat on the Budget Committee, says, and I quote, this takes budget quackery to a new level. That's because they, the same tactics that the Democrats use to kind of contort things so that the budget looks in balance, the Republicans have done the same thing even after the Republicans critic roundly criticized the Democrats for doing it, according to the New York Times. Quote, without relying on tax increases, budget writers were forced into contortions to bring the budget into balance while placating defense hawks clamoring for increased military spending. That would be that guy Cotton, the one that sent the letter to the Iranians. They added nearly $40 billion in emergency war funding to the defense budget for next year, raising military spending without technically breaking uh, strict caps imposed by the 2011 Budget Control Act. So what that means is they found a way around something they helped enact. That's what they do. Now, the plan contains more than $1 trillion in savings from unspecified cuts to programs like food stamps and welfare. And, of course, they're also talking about demanding the full repeal of the Affordable Care Act, including the tax increases that funded the health care law. But the plan assumes the same level of federal revenue over the next 10 years that the Congressional Budget Office foresees with those tax increases in place. Essentially counting $1 trillion of taxes that the same budget swears to forego. That is called, ladies and gentlemen, in the vernacular, smoke and mirrors. That's right, smoke 
and mirrors. Nonsense. It's crap. And they come out with this. And I, I mean, maybe they're trying to make a big show for their team, Tea Party home folks. I don't know. I don't know. But they say in 2024, when I'll be a very old man, the budget would produce a $13 billion surplus. Thanks in part to $53 billion in a projected macro macroeconomic impact generated by Republican policies. Oh, yeah. Now, a Republican from Colorado who's got a, a modicum of sense says, I don't know anyone who believes we're going to balance the budget in 10 years. It's all hooey. Okay. Uh, ironically enough, the budget doesn't cut Pell Grants. It makes the per- Pell Grant program permanently sustainable. Spending on Medicaid would fall $913 billion over a decade once the health program is turned to block grants to the states. But House Republicans preferred to say in the plan, quote, our budget realigns the relationship the federal government has with states and local communities by respecting and restoring the principle of federalism. Yeah, we give the states the money, and if they want to put it in, you know, a lovely new home, or if they want to put it in something else, other maybe, you know, devising a new drugs protocol for lethal injections, fine. We can turn our backs on it. Nod, nod, wink, wink, have a nice day. The plan would cut billions from food stamps. But it's not exactly clear how the budget phrased those reductions. They say they convert SNAP, which is Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. That's food stamps. To a state flexibility fund. So state governments have the power to administer the programs in ways that best fit the needs of their communities with greater incentives to achieve better results. Well, what better results do they think they can achieve? Is there some uh, documented evidence that state administration of food stamps works better than federal administration? I mean, states get involved anyway. Anything the federal government does, the states get involved in implementing anyway. What they're saying to people is, hey, if we give... Because they know, like, a majority of the governors of the states in this country right now are Republicans. So they say, look, we'll give you the money, and if you don't want to spend it on food stamps, you don't want to feed any poor people, you want to provide health care for them, fine. Don't worry about it. And we won't worry about it. Of course, President Obama is none too pleased. None too pleased. He says, quoting here, What we're seeing right now is a failure to invest in education, infrastructure, research, and national defense. All the things that we need to grow need to create jobs to stay at the forefront of innovation and to keep our country safe. He said that the reporters at the White House. He's turned into quite the politician, Barack Obama, i got to say. I'm sorry. I I know a lot of you all love Barack, love to worship the ground he walks on. Uh, But he's a politician. He is straight up a politician. That's what politicians do. They talk like that. And, and you know, it, it's, uh, it's cool if that's what you want to do. Uh, I mean, I guess it's, it's better time better spent than sending, you know, messages to for, letters to foreign governments. But, hey, you know what? The president still holds most of the cards in this budget battle. He really does. Uh, the budget committee is drafting the budget today. And Senate Republicans will unveil their counteroffer. Now, here is something real interesting. Republicans control both houses of Congress. The House Budget Committee is now controlled by Republicans. The Senate controlled by Republicans. So why do they have to make a counteroffer? I mean, aren't aren't they all on the same team? Aren't they all on the same page? Now, the Senate budget is apparently scheduled to balance in 10 years, too. And the Senate budget will include language to help lawmakers repeal or reshape the Affordable Care Act. Apparently, this is going to be one of the major dramas coming out of the Beltway during the spring. This is going to be tough, but we can do this. We must 
do this. Um, they want to break the cap on military spending. Some Repub- The Republican hawks want to break the cap on military spending. Others, however, like Inhofe from Oklahoma, the Republican senator, he says, my concern is getting the numbers up whatever it takes. John McCain says, if the House, if that House wants to act that way, it can. But he criticized this version as not legitimate budgeting. And he's right. It's not legitimate budgeting. We'll see what they come up with here. Because, of course, at the end of the day, they come up with a compromise. And they have to set spending levels for the fiscal year that starts in October. Of course, the other side of the equation is, no matter what they come up with, the president can veto it, or they can sit and perhaps achieve some form of compromise with Barack Obama, something they have not been particularly inclined to do of late. So that's our lead story. I know, I know your eyes are glazed over because it's budget, but when they come for your Social Security, when they come for your Medicare, when they come for food stamps, if you use them, They come for these programs, and they plan on doing it because they are the spiritual godchildren of Ayn Rand and all the rest of these people who don't think there should be any safety net in America whatsoever, freaking ever. And, you know, don't don't say you weren't warned, because that's what they're trying to do. Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'm sure many of you heard, and I mentioned uh, in a previous broadcast about that, Foolishness at the University of Oklahoma with a bunch of frat boys singing some N-word laced song on a bus. A couple people got expelled for it. They planned an investigation. The university acted very, very quickly. Well, now we have the specter of anti-Semitism at another frat house, at another university. This university specifically being Vanderbilt. Campus police at Vanderbilt are investigating three SWAT discovered at a Jewish fraternity house over the weekend. Um, Apparently, and and see, now, I don't know that this was done by frat house people, but it was done to a frat house, a Jewish frat house. Brothers from the Tau chapter of Epsilon, I'm sorry, Alpha Epsilon Pi, discovered two of the Nazi symbols spray-painted on the house's elevator and another on a basement door after a party at the frat house Friday night. Law enforcement believes someone sprayed the symbols between 1.55 and 3.22 a.m. on Saturday. They're investigating the incident as a hate crime. University officials, anti-hate groups, condemn the act of vandalism. Fraternity President Josh Hyman said he and his brothers will try and help the elite university, Southern University, grow from the experience. All well and good. <clears throat> good response, etc. However, Here's, here's, it's not really nitpicking or parting company with all this, but I think it's imperative on people who are not Jewish to speak up about this. All right? As a black person, I'm speaking up about it because it just happened in Oklahoma to black people. And I am a firm believer in the notion that until you come together to fight this kind of nonsense, come together. And by coming together, I mean when it happens to black people, non-black people say something about it. When it happens to Jews, non-Jews say something about it, including black people. Then maybe we'll create a climate eventually. I mean, I may be gone by then, but maybe we'll create a climate eventually where no one will find this tolerable. Where the minute they start singing some nonsense about black people on a bus, Half the bus says, what are you doing? And they shut up. Or when somebody pulls out some kind of magic marker or spray paint to spray a swastika in a Jewish Jewish frat house, somebody's walking through the frat house and says, wait a minute, what are you doing? And it wouldn't have to be a Jew. And it definitely wouldn't be a black person in the case of this situation that's going on. So at some point, People got to stand up for people who don't look exactly like them. All right? Enough said. Anybody who's been driving on the streets of our great city or of our metropolitan area 
knows that we don't just have potholes in New York and New Jersey. We've got craters in New York and New Jersey. Craters that will take out your wheels, craters that will throw your car's alignment, wheel alignment, completely out. New Yorkers are complaining about these craters. And, and by the way, this is not the first winter it's happened, but this has been very severe. As a matter of fact, Whitey's Tire Service in Brooklyn says this year is worse than ever. Last year was crazy, but now these past two weeks, it's getting even crazier. Blown tires, bent rims. Repairs are slower than usual because of the Arctic temperatures. But here's the other side of this. Okay? Uh, Part of the problem is a lack of highway workers. There's just not as many workers as there used to be. You know, there are another... uh, There are other problems. You know, again, the weather... They've gotten some new technologies they can't fully implement yet. But understand this. The city has a long-standing policy of laying off about 200 assistant highway repairers every December and hiring them back in March. It's meant to be a cost-saving measure. These people only make 40 Gs a year. 40 Gs! And you can't keep them on the job. And see, this is, for me part and parcel of what I see as a larger problem. A larger, larger problem. And that is, in too many industries, in too many areas of our lives, people, consumers, are being asked to deal with shrunken workforces. Anybody who's been on the phone and had to wait 20 minutes to get a live body and 20 minutes is a conservative estimate, I might add. So in some cases, it can be as long as an hour to reach a live body. You know what I'm talking about. The reason why you can't get a live body is the same reason why they can't get these potholes fixed on time. Not enough workers. See, if there were enough workers, they'd pick up your phone in a couple of minutes. That's why back in the day, it was unheard of. They have long waits to talk to because they had operators all over the kazoo. Not anymore, though. Now, things have changed. Ever so slightly, as they say in the community. And when it comes to these potholes, if they change that policy, maybe, just maybe, along with technology, the potholes would get fixed faster. Would seem to make sense. Um... But, you know, the drivers are the ones that are getting nailed with this. Uh, people, you know, coming off the George Washington trying to get to the FDR drive. Bam! 150 bucks for ding rims and 300 bucks for a cheap set of tires. That's what happens. You hit a crater in the road. And see, I'm sure people that drive understand very clearly, when you see somebody coming down the street and suddenly they veer into your lane and risk a head-on collision, it's because they're trying to avoid a pothole in their own lane. And they're trying to, they'll swerve right back at the last second to avoid the pothole. There's got to be a better way. Got to be a smarter way than laying off a bunch of people who could help alleviate the problem. Come on! You know, uh, In the 1990s, the city did heavy repairs on 1,400 miles of road. Now it's 900 to 1,000 a year. So 900 to 1,000 a year and 1,400 a year in the 90s. We're going backwards, y'all. That's part of the problem. We are going backwards. Now, you know, the DOT... Transportation Commissioner Polly Trottenberg said the hardworking men and women of DOT's roadways divisions have filled over 158,000 potholes in this cold and difficult winter season. 
<coughs> she says it'll change as temperatures rise, too. It'll get out more often. Um, but still, still, it, I mean, I'm assuming Polly Trottenberg has the capacity, the authority, as head of the Transportation Department, to change that policy so that you have more people filling potholes throughout the winter. Trust me, uh, they'll work the overtime, and they'll bundle up and go out in the most severe weather. So why not? They're saying that uh, the the union boss uh, says this has been going on for 15 years. doesn't work out that way. You know, full-time repairers get run ragged. Now, they make twice as much as the assistant repairers. And uh, even Joe Paleo, the president of the union, says they're paying out three times as much in overtime when the city could just keep more seasonal workers on the job and they wouldn't fall so far behind with the potholes either. Sounds logical to me. Uh, you know, and, and the uh, assistant highway repair serve an apprenticeship of eight years. Eight years. Wow, that's a long time to learn how to fix a pothole. Uh, I mean, that that's like, you know, college, undergrad college, and grad school. But hey, you know, if that's what it takes to fix a car, a pothole, fine. Fix it. Keep those people working. I'm sure many of you have heard about and know full well about that ugly, ugly, ugly beatdown at a Brooklyn McDonald's the other week. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, I don't know who to be angrier at here. The people who attacked this girl, or the people who stood around and watched and did absolutely nothing, nothing. And you know, the ringleader, the woman that they say is the alleged ringleader. Let me be journalistically correct here. A woman named Ania Ferguson. Woman, she's sixteen. She apparently was is part of a gang. Uh, I think she may have gone to. Uh, uh, Erasmus Hall High School. She was punching and kicking and flailing so hard she lost her, her blouse and continued to beat down and kick the woman in the head a bunch of times just wearing a bra. And the prosecution says she kicked her in the head multiple times. Now, apparently, this beef was two months in the making. The victim, Ariana Taylor, survived without serious injuries. Uh... It's very, very bizarre. She was in court last Friday with Ania Ferguson. As it turns out, uh, she's got a, a, a one-year-old child who now, of course, is going to be impacted by her mother's, I don't know, maybe call it stupidity, maybe call it mental illness, whatever it is. Because, you know, you, you got to figure, even if you're real, real mad and real, real upset, in this day and age, you have to figure somebody's got a video camera, not a video camera, a, a phone cam, camera on a cell phone, and they will actually tape you doing whatever it is that you're doing. Now, one of the things that crossed my mind when I saw this story is that for Ania Ferguson and people like Ania Ferguson, doing time is not really that much worse than being out in the street. She now doesn't have to worry about her child, as crass as that may sound. She doesn't have to worry about her child. She doesn't have to deal, at least in the short term, with whatever rages led her to do this. And, and it wasn't just her. She had previously been arrested, apparently for stabbing her brother uh, in her arm. That was last month. And punched her 64-year-old grandmother in the face. She's also been charged with violating an order of protection by allegedly cutting her grandmother's cable TV line. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Again, I don't know what, what do you do with a kid like this? And what do you do with people who would simply stand there, as Bob Marley once said, stand aside and look? How do you, how do you justify that? How do you justify 
watching a beatdown like you were watching the WWE on television. That's just, it's, it's not, as far as I'm concerned, it's not justifiable. It is simply not justifiable. But people do what people do. Uh, and, I, you know, I, my thing is, at some point, folks have to, have to do better. And I'm not talking about 15 and 16-year-old kids. 15 and 16-year-old kids, at some point, they, you know, they actually do uh, have a life as children still. But we've got to do better in dealing with these children and making them at least on the road to being better adults. We only got a couple of minutes left. So I'm going to do our little to the ridiculous story. So just in case, you know, people think, well, you're a progressive, you know, you must have certain beliefs and that, 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 that. I do. But there are times when it makes absolutely no sense at all to express those beliefs in a manner such as this. Apparently, an associate professor of sociology from Penn State University, a woman named Karen Howland, was on a flight from Nicaragua to Miami. <clears throat> so she makes the following announcement on the plane. The United States has declared war on Venezuela. The United States has declared war on Venezuela. Again, this is on video. Woman reminds her, you've said this like about seven times. So she continues, my great hero, Hugo Chavez, nationalized the oil supply so that the people would own the oil, not ExxonMobil. Tell ExxonMobil to go away. Now, you could say, well, hey, you know, that, that's just sort of free speech. But then she goes on to be recorded lighting up a cigarette, puffing a few times, and then stumbling it out on the trade table in front of her. She was arrested on landing, of course, and uh, as she was uh, being escorted off the plane, she uh, shouted, F you, this is not a democracy. <laughs> what she's trying to prove here, I don't know. She has a prior arrest for public drunkenness in 2013, and she said she had a wine and juice spritzer on the plane. Penn State officials had no comment. Howland herself gave an interview to Philadelphia Magazine. Why not? She said that her rant was an act of civil disobedience. And uh, when she was asked why she felt it necessary to yell about Venezuela on an airplane, I'm very knowledgeable about that part of the world. I teach about U.S. imperialism in Latin America, and the U.S. has declared war on Venezuela. That means military aggression. They tried to take Hugo out with a coup, and then they took him out with cancer. Fidel, that would be Fidel Castro, agrees with me that the CIA had some involvement in giving Hugo Chavez cancer. Uh, so, you know, she goes on and on and on. And look, you may agree with, with what she's saying, but geez, what's wrong with you? And I'm not saying you're giving academics a bad name. You're giving yourself a real bad name. And I'm sure Penn State ain't all that, you know, freaked out with you either. You know, I mean, not not enamored of what you do. Anyway, it is time for me to go. My thanks again to Jason Taubenfeld at the controls, allowing me to do this, allowing me to talk to you on the Progressive Radio Network. My name is Mark Riley. This has been the Mark Riley Show. Have yourselves a fantastic rest of the evening and a better week ahead. Thank you.